I don't know if you've ever had an encounter, somebody who you knew in high school who was a bully, <laughs> somebody who everyone tried to avoid but always came and was pestering people, and you came upon them somewhere in a restaurant or out somewhere at a grocery store, and, and you just, you, you don't want to go near them. You have such bad memories of who they used to be, and yet as you come together, you know they've changed. They're eager to tell you, let me, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you what God has done for me. It, wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Has that happened to anyone? I know at least one person in high school I would never have thought that I would ever run into, and they would give praise and glory to God. And yet it happened. And the reality is, is that as we're looking at the opening verses here, this is exactly what we come across, isn't it? It's amazing. Here's the most powerful king of the pagan ancient world. And he, he immediately opens up by saying, I, I want to praise God. Let, let me tell you what he's done. And then he extols and, and glorifies God. He even sends out an edict to the farthest ends of the kingdom. Let me tell you about this most holy God. Can you believe it? Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to give a personal testimony to God's goodness to him. It's, it's arresting, isn't it? It should be. It, it should be something that as we read, it grabs us by the throat because we know how evil this man is. It, it, it propels us and moves us forward. It says, I want to know more. He says that God has done all of these things. There's signs and wonders. Well, I want to know what those signs and wonders are. I want to know what God has done in his life. It, it, it seems to be a remarkable transformation. I would even say it's perhaps one of the greatest opening lines anywhere in the whole of the Bible. And as we go just a little bit further, we see it all started with another dream. A dream that kept him awake that raised great fear in him again. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is at the highest point of his power. He spent years subduing the other nations around him. There's no major wars. There may be some skirmishes going on to make sure that, that, that people are subjected, but there's no major wars. The, there's tribute coming in from all around the empire. So he's now rich beyond belief. And he's had time to reform, to beautify, and redevelop whole cities within the empire. Not the least of which is Babylon itself, with all of its spectacular, ornate buildings. It's time to relax and enjoy the good life. But then this dream comes. It starts out good. It starts out very good. But then it terrifies him. And just like the last time when we looked at chapter 2, the only person who can interpret it is Daniel. Now, I'm going to suggest, just like I did when we looked at chapter 2 about a month ago, that Nebuchadnezzar more than likely has a pretty good understanding 
of what this dream means. And I say that because the imagery that's used in the dream here uh, of this tree that's growing to the, to the very heavens, whose canopy has all of this wonderful fruit and all of the animals and the birds of creation uh, find shelter on it, it was a very common symbology or symbolism or metaphor that was used by many ancient cultures at the time. Even Israel used it. But we can go to the New Testament and we have something that's very similar. What is it? It's the parable of the mustard seed. The smallest seed, and yet as it grows, the kingdom of God grows. It grows so it outstrips any other plant in creation. And the birds of the air are able to find shelter in it. Now because this is such a common symbol that was used... I think it's pretty safe to say that Nebuchadnezzar probably understood that he was at the center of this. He, he knew to some degree that he was the great tree and that his reign, the kingdom of Babylon that he, he looked after, was a blessing to many peoples. What deeply troubled him was that there was this angelic being that appeared in the dream. And it declared, you need to chop down the tree. Cut off its limbs, throw its fruit away, strip it of all its leaves. Leave only a stump that's wrapped with uh, bands of bronze and iron and its roots. That's it. But it goes farther than that. And here's what really shakes Nebuchadnezzar. Because the tree, immediately, it goes from the talking about a tree to a king, and it says this person, the king that the tree represents, is going to wander in the wild with the mind of a beast. And he's going to wander until he comes to a recognition that the Most High God rules over all earthly kingdoms, and that he has the sole prerogative, the sole authority to, to, to assign kings to kingships. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's at, he's at the very height, the very pinnacle of his power and his wealth. And he recognizes to some degree that, that he's at the center of this dream. He doesn't understand the full meaning of the dream, but he's afraid because he knows there's going to be a terrible judgment and somehow it's coming upon him. When Daniel is asked to interpret the dream, what's interesting is Daniel becomes very afraid too. Did you notice that? He, he, he's dismayed. He hears what uh, uh, the king is telling him and he immediately becomes alarmed because he recognizes himself the importance of the dream and the meaning of the dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar's afraid because he knows that there's a judgment coming on the person that that tree represents. Daniel's afraid. <laughs> because he knows that this great King Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible temple, temper. And just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Allen showed us how this temper blew up in, in just a fraction, in a millisecond, when he threw Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And so, yeah, he, he's, he's worried. There is this terrible uh, judgment coming down, and how is he going to tell the king the truth about all of this? And yet the king looking and seeing his hesitation, tells him, you know, just tell me straight. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it. Let, let me know what it means. So Daniel starts to, to reveal all of this, how Nebuchadnezzar is this strong king, this tree growing up. 
and he is blessing so many other peoples and nations, but that the Most High God was going to pass judgment on him. He was going to be cut down. He was going to be forced to live in the wild like a beast until he recognized the sovereignty of God over his own kingship. Now, a year passes. I imagine the dream is fading from his memory a little bit. I doubt that it's keeping him awake at night right, right now. Nothing seems to have happened, and you know what happens when that? Then all of a sudden, the action takes place again, right? Nebuchadnezzar becomes complacent. So one day he's out on the roof of his palace and he's looking at the cityscape, everything out before him. And you can imagine, again, it's the the pinnacle of his power and his wealth. And and so he's looking out and he sees this wonderful, huge uh, fortress, the walls that go around the city. And they've been built up, they've been fortified, they're greater, they're stronger than they've ever been before. He's created perhaps upwards to 13 new temples for for different gods, and they're dotting the cityscape along the way. Uh, In in the gate, or in the walls itself, there is the gate of Ishtar, which we still have pictures of. It it is this wonderful, beautiful gate. It's huge, and it's encrusted. It's covered with all of these beautiful tiles. As he looks out, he sees the hustle, the bustle of the city, and he says, man have I done good? (laughs) Literally, he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built with my power, uh, mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? Look what I've done. Isn't this great? And immediately, immediately a voice from heaven comes down and the kingdom is stripped away from him. He's sent out into the wild and yes, he does live as an animal. His hair grows, He's eating the grass. He's totally exposed to the elements. Now, at this point, we need to clarify just a couple things as we go along. First of all, what's the nature of this curse? Now, for centuries, there are theologians and pastors who have said that, you know what, this is some form of lycanthropy. That is, you know, changing into a werewolf. Now, we're not talking about DC Comics werewolf or some scary movie where you actually see the shirt coming off and the hair bristling up and the fangs coming out. But we're talking about what's called clinical lycanthropy, where a person falls prey to a sickness of the mind that they actually can change into an animal and then they live like that animal. It is something that's out there. Now, other theologians, other pastors would say that Nebuchadnezzar simply became fully depraved in the fullest sense, and and that God took off all of the subconscious restraints on his understanding, on his being. They were removed so that he acted and he spoke and he thought in a nonsensical way. And because of that, he lived as the most base, debased animal that there was. Either way, this is a terrible fall. From the pinnacle of kingship, the most powerful man in the world, to utter ruin and disgrace. And I would probably even go one step farther in in that his humanity has been stripped of him. The second thing we need to think about or ask ourselves, and this may jar your, your thought a little bit more, is who exactly are we talking about? 
The text clearly indicates that this is King Nebuchadnezzar, right? But is it the same Nebuchadnezzar as chapters 1 through 3? Now, for centuries, the church, as Christians, we've always believed that this is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II, the same Nebuchadnezzar who took Israel into captivity in chapter 1, the same Nebuchadnezzar who had the dream of this mighty statue in chapter 2, the same Nebuchadnezzar who throws Daniel's friends into the fiery furnace in chapter 3. That's how it naturally reads, right? The problem is we know that Daniel is not always chronological. And one of the greatest challenges for historians as they look at this is they say, we have no justification for saying that any of this ever happened to Nebuchadnezzar II. Nothing jives with, with what we know happened. And they have extensive lists, historiographies, chronologies of everything the king has done one year after another. Now here's the issue. Daniel says that the curse is going to come for a period or seven periods of time. Now, seven obviously is the number of perfection in the Bible, but it's also generally understood at this point to represent a year. The problem is that Nebuchadnezzar II, Nebuchadnezzar of chapters 1 through 3, never leaves his kingship of Babylon. He's never absent from the throne. We do have, however, historical records of a king of Babylon called Nabu, uh, Nabonidus. I practice it, I, I swear. <laughs> he did disappear for several years and lived as a hermit. And guess who was the Persian ruler who ruled as vice-regent in his place while he wasn't there? Belshazzar the king that we read about in chapter 5 that we're going to see next week. This king, Nabonidus, was out in the wild for several years. When he came to the throne, he had usurped the throne from the one who was before him. He married the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar that we know from chapters 1 through 3, and then he takes the title of Nebuchadnezzar. So think of it this way. Yesterday we saw the, the Charles become king of England, and we also, we also see William, he is the, 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 uh, the Duke of Wales. This becomes a title more than it is a name. So Nabonidus, to justify his own rulership, marries the daughter and takes on the name. Now in the end you may say, well, does this really matter? It doesn't matter if we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar II and Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar III. Well, for me, I always want to go back to historical accuracy in the Bible. But I think the more important thing for me is, is I look at what's going on from chapter 1 in Daniel and look at the flow of the narrative and everything that's happened. I think it's important for us to see God is continually at work in Israel throughout all of the time of their captivity. He is encouraging them. He's fostering a faith in them in his promise that one day he will return and reunite them as a nation. So Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar II, he takes them into captivity. 
Chapter 6, we see Darius, the the Medo-Persian king, who comes in and he dethrones the Babylons. And what happens? He allows the first Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and to restart building the temple again. And in between those two, God is sustaining the faith of his people while they're in captivity, saying, who is really the king on this earth? And whose kingship are you following? In the last verses of chapter 4, we see this Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't matter who he is in the end, but he comes to his senses. He, he's restored. And we're told that he, he lifts his eyes to the heaven and he gives public praise to Yahweh. This is the most holy, sovereign God. He is the only one who has an eternal kingdom and he has the prerogative and authority to choose who is going to be king. And so he sends out this edict, you know, let me tell you what this God has done. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar, he's been walking on his roof of the palace, and he, he looks at his kingdom, and, and he falls because of his arrogance, because of his pride, he takes credit for everything. But God humbles him. But here he is now, at the end, giving praise to God. But I think the question we need to ask is, is he truly changed? Look at verse 37 with me. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 37. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. For those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Certainly seems like he had a change of heart, doesn't it? And I know, as I was looking this week, I saw pastors and theologians, dead guys, who would say, yes, he, he's, he's become a follower of God. I saw several well-respected pastors and teachers today who said, yes, he, he's, he is now a follower of God. There has been a transformation. He's saved. But there are others in an older tradition that goes back and says, no, he's not saved. And I think there's more than enough evidence in the text itself to actually say, yeah, he's had a religious experience, but he's not a true follower of God. He simply added a recognition of Yahweh as one of the supreme gods of all of the pantheons, of all of the gods that there are in the earth. He just added God to his own beliefs. Now, the, the, the whole issue of whether Nebuchadnezzar saved depends on how you understand verse 27. And that is the chance of repentance that God gives him. When Daniel explains the dream to the king, he also says, you know what? If you break off of your unrighteous practices, if if you show mercy to people, perhaps God may relent and lengthen your prosperity. Well, here's the thing that we need to notice this isn't a promise of life or eternal life that's held out to him. It's simply a promise that the prosperity and the good days will last a little longer. And this is the same thing that God holds out to Nineveh. Jonah says, if you repent, there's this great judgment that's coming, but if you repent, perhaps God will lengthen your days. And when they did... That promised destruction was delayed by about 70 to 80 years. 
So there's a biblical precedent for saying that God, that the God of Israel shows mercy to unbelievers if they turn from their unbelieving ways. But there's not necessarily always a promise of salvation with it. And that's the first thing I think we just need to grapple with here is that this promise is not a promise of salvation. It's only a promise that the days of his reign and, and all of the good things that have happened because of it, uh, the benefits that come to people will go a little longer. But there's also, I think, several clues in the text itself. And, and I think this is important to work through, and we'll get to that in a second. Here's the thing. If we believe that Nebuchadnezzar is relaying these events after he's become a follower of Christ, and that's why this whole thing is written, right? It's an emphasis. He's telling the story afterwards. This is his personal testimony. If this is true, it's curious that a saved man would say three times in verse 8, verse, 19, verse 9, and in verse 18 that he believed that the spirit of the holy gods dwelt in Daniel. Not God, but gods, plural. And why would he say in verse 8, you know what, this Daniel, his name is Belshazzar, he's named after my God. Now, if you were in a right relationship with God, if you were saved, why would you say, I have named him after my God? And by the way, it's a pagan God. And then we have at the end, he's restored. He, he, he receives more blessings than he had before. And what does he say? My glory my splendor. He, he, he doesn't say it's God's glory. He says, my glory, my splendor. So it just doesn't make sense as I'm looking at the text. And I can add to this the whole understanding that we have no historical records that any Babylonian king ever became a follower of God. And I was looking yesterday and even early this morning, I couldn't find any extant or extra Jewish traditional materials that would say, yes, there was a Babylonian king that came to, to believe that Yahweh was God. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Nebuchadnezzar was never saved. And that's a challenge because I hear preachers I revere say, yeah, he's saved. It's important because all of these sermons, all of these texts, uh, uh, teachings, when you hear something on Daniel 4, almost invariably the focus is on pride and God's prerogative to humble the proud. Now that's certainly there. Don't get me wrong, it's there. But to say that chapter 4 is primarily focused on pride and then to apply it to us really misses the mark of the whole purpose of what's going on in chapter 4, of why God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. And that's at the heart of the story. That, that's the important part. Three times, well, this story is going on, we're told in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32, we're told that the humbling of the king had a purpose. It was so that he would know that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of all men, and he grants them to whomever he wishes. The purpose was that, and I heard as Virginia was, was reading for the first time, it says peoples, not just the king, 
as, the, as Nebuchadnezzar is, is sharing the story, it is that peoples may know that he is the Most High God. There is a sovereign God who rules over all earthly kingdoms. And, and, and that truth needs to be understood in the context of what God's people are experiencing. And what's that? They're in captivity. <laughs> And they've been in captivity for at least 35 years by this point. So here's the thing. The, the survival of God's people was down to the exiles living out the rest of the 70 years and turning their hearts back to God of not succumbing and becoming like the others. They had no temple, they had no priests, they had no, nothing to offer God. Will they be able to spiritually survive as God's people through this exile? They were people living in two worlds. Physically, they were now subjects of an earthly kingdom with a pagan king. And yet, they were called by faith to live as subjects of the holy, righteous God, Yahweh, trusting in his promise that he was going to come and gather them together again as one. So in humbling the most powerful king of the day, he's saying, I am sovereign even over the one I have put over you. He's demonstrating that his sovereign rulership truly is over all things. And Israel, no matter how hard it is, for you, no, no matter all of the, the things that are coming upon you and all of the worship of other gods, the, the evil that's in the empire, I'm sovereign. I have put Nebuchadnezzar in control. I continue to control all things. The ultimate purpose of all of that is what? To strengthen Israel's hope that they could live out the rest of their time in exile by faith. Their survival depended on it. God's people needed to know time and time again that he was in control, no matter what seemed to be going on in the world around them. He has established the nations, even wicked and evil Babylon, and they needed to rest in the assurance that he is sovereignly managing and in control of all world affairs. Now, throughout the whole of the New Testament, God reveals himself as sovereign in so many ways. I just want to take a small thread of that. He sends his son, Jesus, into the world to do battle with Satan, the ruler of this world. And you know what? At the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he goes out into the wilderness, and what happens? Satan assaults him, and he, he takes him to a high mountain and shows him the glory of all of the earthly kingdoms around him. And he says... All these I will give you if you but fall down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. When Jesus is on trial before Pilate, just hours before his death, his crucifixion, Pilate is frustrated that Jesus isn't answering the questions. And he says, don't you know that I have the power and the authority over you to crucify you or to let you go? And what's Jesus' response? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
Now, at the, by the end of that week, it looks like Satan's won because Jesus is killed. He's crucified. The battle is over. But Christ rises again from the grave, and Satan's victory turns now to defeat. We have that whole idea of, of Satan again in the book of Revelation. We are given this vision, the picture that he is a ferocious dragon whose desire is to destroy the church. And we know that there will be a great war one day. Satan and all of his lackeys and hosts are on this side, and on the other is the Lamb of God. Who's going to win? The Lamb of God, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And, and we have this wonderful statement in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Today, we live in a time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We are people who are subject to earthly rulers, and, and yet we're called, like Israel, to live as people under the rulership of Christ. Our challenge, I, I would tend to say, is greater than theirs because they knew the prophets had told them that it would only be 70 years. <laughs> we don't know when Christ is coming again, and it's been well over 2,000. And you know what? Everywhere we look, there are earthly powers and authorities, kingdoms, nations, corporations, agencies, and all of they, they have their own gospel. They have their own purpose. They, they have their own uh, uh, what's the proper term in business where they, they have their own agenda. That is their gospel and the modus operandi of, of, of their existence. Now, we can look at our governments and say, well, I may not like Rob Ford, I may not like Trudeau, and definitely they are not like Nebuchadnezzar, right? But you know what? Each one of them has their own agenda. It could be gender, could be sexuality. And you know what? Most of the time, these things that are part of their agenda of, of socialization are connected to grants and subsidies. When we were in Chile, we were doing relief development work amongst the Mapuche uh, First Peoples down there. And, and we would want to do something with the ladies. But as soon as we wrote up that and got money from the government, the government would say, you have to talk about reproduction and abortion. It was against the law in Chile. But our funds were tied to the dictum, the agenda of the federal government. If, if you're going to do this, then you need to do it on our terms. We see that in Trinity Western. You, know, you, you want to have a law degree, well, we'll grant you that, but you have to open up the doors to all genders. You, you can't restrict uh, how a person lives on campus by having this morals clause. We see it in summer jobs programs as churches look to, to have people come and serve amongst them in, in, in VBS or whatever. There are attachments and connections because they have an agenda and we feel the pressure. You, you could be in school. Every day you're, you're under the expectations, the demand of the school or the school board to forsake a godly worldview, to forsake your, your godly ethics for a morality where they say, this is right, this is what we're going to teach, and if you want to graduate, you have to at least show an outward acceptance of this. 
It could be evolutionary theory, the existence of God, and again, the big one, sexuality and gender. You could be working in a business or a corporation, and they say, you know what, you have to use inclusive language. In fact, if you don't use inclusive language, you're going to find yourself before a disciplinary board. You could even lose your job. The, these are the pressures, the anxieties, the agendas, the gospel that these agencies and corporations and nations have. There are rogue nations in this world who regularly set off intercontinental ballistic missiles and threaten nuclear war. They're corporations who act as sovereign nations. It, it's not an easy time to live in, is it? And yet God has called us to live for His glory under His rules. Every day our hope is under siege. It may not feel like it's under siege. We may not see the ramparts up and, and the people charging at the gates, but there is a slow siege of attrition. This is what we believe. This is what we're moving. This is what everybody needs to accept. And this is the people of God. As we wait for Jesus, it's easy to become disillusioned. It's easy to become anxious. And it's easy to forget or to lose sight of the promise of God. As we look at the state of the world around us in, in this time of now but not yet, it's easy to lose our hope amid all of the brutish realities of life that are around us and become satisfied with those tarnished riches that are held out to us from the world. It's easy to become disheartened by the injustice and wars that are going all over the world and lose sight of God's end goal, of God's purposes for us. Here's the thing, we can have faith, but if our faith is not centered in a sovereign God who is in control of all things, our hope will shrivel up and die. When our faith is centered in the truth that, Jesus, that God is sovereignly establishing all the nations and king, earthly kingdoms, our spiritual survival is in the hanging. If we do not believe that, our faith will shrivel because we have no hope. If I don't believe God is sovereign, I'm not going to live in that sovereignty here and now today, doing what I know I need to do for my teachers, for my, my parents, for, for my, 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 uh, my boss, in the light of the promise that's coming. And that's what gives us the hope. Our hope is founded on a deep-seated belief that despite all of the powers at play in the world today, God is sovereign. And this hope is what sustains us in this world here and now as we sojourn and wait for Christ. Our Heavenly Father. Oh, we 